0: Our New Testament reading is John chapter 8 verses 3 through 11, and this can be found on page 521 in the paperback Bibles. The scribes and the Pharisees brought a woman who had been caught in adultery, and placing her in the midst, they said to him, Teacher, this woman has been caught in the act of adultery. Now in the law, Moses commanded us to stone such a woman. So what do you say? This they said to test him, that they might have some... Has no one condemned you? She said, no one, Lord. And Jesus said, neither do I condemn you. Go. And from now on, sin no more. The sermon text is uh, Deuteronomy chapter 5, verses 6 and 18, and chapter 22, verses 13 through 21. Uh, This first portion can be found on page 86 of the paperback Bibles, and the second on page 94. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery, and you shall not commit adultery. If any man takes a wife and goes into her and then hates her and accuses her of misconduct and brings a bad name upon her, saying, I took this woman, and when I came near her, I did not find in her evidence of virginity, then the father of the young woman and her mother shall take and bring out the evidence of her virginity to the elders of the city in the gate." And the father of the young woman shall say to the elders, I gave my daughter to this man to marry, and he hates her. And behold, he has accused her of misconduct, saying, I did not find in your daughter evidence of virginity. And yet this is the evidence of my daughter's virginity. And they shall spread the cloak before the elders of the city. Then the elders of that city shall take the man and whip him. They shall find him a hundred shekels of silver and give them to the father of the young woman because he has brought a bad name upon the virgin of Israel, and she shall be his wife. He may not divorce her all his days, but if the thing is true, that evidence of virginity was not found in the young woman, then they shall bring out the young woman to the door of her father's house, and the men of her city shall stone her to death with stones because she has done an outrageous thing in Israel by whoring in her father's house so shall you purge the evil from your midst. This is the word of the Lord.
1: All right, well, we are continuing our series in uh, the book of Deuteronomy. And all fall, we have been saying that Deuteronomy is a covenant document, that it is a treaty between God the King and Israel, his people. And so as we read it, it can help inform us on what life looks like for us when God is the king of our lives. And uh, last week we we started talking about uh, the sixth commandment. You should not murder. And we talked about how God is concerned for all of life. That God cares about the lives of his people and he has created the lives of his people and because of that we should not take away life. And I think logically we all get that. Even if you're not a Christian, you get the idea, the concept, that if God is the creator of life and the giver of life, then we shouldn't be the ones who take it away. But when we get to the seventh commandment, it's a whole different story, right? The seventh commandment is the one where God lays claim, not to our, our life in general, but very specifically, he lays claim to our sex lives. And when we hear that, we don't get it. We have a lot of questions. It it raises all sorts of questions. We wonder, why does God care about that? Why is this something that God is concerned with? If you are not a Christian, maybe the thing that comes to your mind is you you wonder, why do Christians make such a big deal about this? If you are a Christian, maybe you're thinking, well, I know God says some things about sex. I know that he has rules, but, but I'm not sure what those rules are. To be honest, I'm not clear on what it means for me to be obedient to God in this commandment. Well, when we get to the seventh commandment, from our position in a a sex-crazed and confused culture, thankfully, we come to a commandment that gives us a lot of answers. This is a commandment that answers our questions. And so today, I want to look at four things that this teaches us about sex. First, it teaches us that sex is good and meaningful. Secondly, it teaches us that sex is not everything. Thirdly, it teaches us that sex is misused often. And fourthly, it tells us that sex is redeemed in the gospel. So let's get into that. Sex is good and meaningful. Scripture tells us a lot of stuff about sex. It's in there a whole lot. And the first thing that we learn from Scripture about sex is that sex is a gift of God, Christians get a bad rap for being prudish about sex. We get a bad rap for for not talking about it, but the Bible talks about it all the time. The Bible is clear that sex is a blessing that is intended to be enjoyed by his people. Page one of the Bible talks about sex. From the moment of creation, it says people were commanded to have sex. He says To Adam and Eve. Be fruitful and multiply. Fill the garden. He commanded us to have sex. Amen? Come on. That's that's great. Genesis chapter 2. We see the first marriage and it says, Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And it says the man and his wife were both naked and they were not ashamed. Genesis 2 shows us this picture of sex, that sex was created to be the physical expression of the marriage relationship. It was created to be the physical expression of this unifying, intimate, and joyful connection between a man and a wife. And the Bible celebrates that. The Bible celebrates sex. Proverbs 5, it says... Let your fountain be blessed and rejoice in the wife of your youth. A lovely deer, a graceful doe, let her breasts fill you at all times with delight. Be intoxicated always with her love. The Bible is not shy about sex. In fact, it's a little bit graphic. If you don't know, the the entire book of Song of Solomon is a book of erotic love poetry. If you read through it and you know what it's talking about, it's hard to read it and not blush. It is is love poetry between a husband and a wife, and it's celebrated. It's a gift. It's beautiful. So that's the first thing. Sex is a gift. Secondly, the Bible tells us that sex is for procreation. I think it's weird that I have to make that a point, (laughs) but... You can today buy a book on sex and read it from cover to cover and it will never mention that maybe babies are going to come out of this. (laughs) Sex is for procreation. Scholars, when they wrote about the seventh commandment, a lot of the stuff I read this week was quick to say, this commandment is deeply connected to the fifth commandment. Do you remember it? We've been trying to memorize it. What's the fifth? Come on, you guys can talk. I know it. Honor your father and mother. Two people got it. Keep working. We're going to do it three more times. (laughs) Honor your father and mother. It's connected. Why is it connected? Well, because this is where families come from. (laughs) Families come from sex. This law is a law that deals with the family unit. And and we in our culture have so divorced sex from reproduction that we tend to think of pregnancy as a risk associated with sex, right? Right? rather than the natural outcome of it one reason that sex is intended for a marriage relationship is because it produces families it makes children that's what it's for but that's not all that it's for i want to be clear sex is for cro- procreation but that's not all it was for it is also for pleasure sex is also for intimacy let me ask let me ask the room how often do you want to have sex? You're not going to answer that question. That's okay. I'm not expecting But just imagine this. Whatever your answer might be, imagine that every time you wanted to have sex, you did. And every time you did, a child was produced from that. Kids' church would be so rough. <laughs> sex is not only for procreation. If our sexual desire was directly proportional to the biological need for it, we'd probably only want to have sex a few times in life. Maybe some guys in this room would never want to have sex. <laughs> but sex is, is is intended for more than that. We have a desire to have it more often because it's not merely about childbearing. Sex is meant for our pleasure. It is meant to encourage intimacy. It is meant to encourage that oneness of marriage. Sex works in tandem with our emotional relationship in a marriage. And I say in tandem because it's not a direct one-to-one correlation, but I know for a fact that it's always connected. A couple that is struggling emotionally is almost always struggling sexually. A couple that's struggling sexually is almost always struggling emotionally. One doesn't necessarily cause the other, but there is always a relationship there. Sex is is intended to bring us together. That's why I really like uh, the biblical word they often use for sex is yada. It's this word to know. Remember Genesis 4, it says Adam knew his wife and they conceived a son? No is a really, it's a meaningful word to describe sex because sex produces knowledge. Sex produces an intimate knowledge of two people, between two people. It is intended to connect us together. It's intended to connect us deeply to our spouses. And not just physically, but spiritually, emotionally. So sex, it's not only for procreation, it is a gift that God has given us to enhance our relationships as husbands and wives. The other thing that scripture tells us is that sex is meaningful. Sex is meaning-filled. The Bible tells us that sex can only be understood in the context of a marriage between a husband and a wife. Paul, when he's reflecting on on that Genesis 2 passage, in Ephesians he says, Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. We just read that, Genesis 2. But then he says, This mystery is profound. And I'm saying that it refers to Christ and the church. Scripture tells us that sex is intended to tell us something about the relationship between Christ and the church. In this deeply symbolic way, sex is a picture of the relationship between Christ and the church. This relationship of mutual submission and service. This relationship of self-sacrifice. And to convey that meaning, it must occur in the context of a covenant commitment. It has to be done where there is an unbreakable bond, a promise of lifelong love, a promise of mutual submission, of self giving, of service from both sides. Sex reflects the love of Christ. It reflects his commitment to this church. It reflects his commitment to us, broken sinners. But that means it demands an unbreakable covenant. In order to convey that message, it has to happen inside of an unbreakable covenant. So that's point one. Point one is that sex is good and it is a gift from God, that sex is good and it is full of meaning. But the second point is this sex is not everything. We have exalted sex beyond its proper place in our culture. It's just a fact. C.S. Lewis in Mere Christianity, 50 years ago, was talking about this. He was commenting on how we can easily fill a room full of people to watch a woman undress. He said, But just imagine if we thought that same way about our hunger. Imagine if you could fill a room full of people as a waiter lifts the lid on a covered dish. And it says, right, as the, right, as the lights, right before the lights turn out, you see, it's a chicken leg. <laughs> Everyone says, ooh. If you saw that, if you observed that happening, you would think something has gone wrong with these people's attachment to food. Well, in the same way, if someone would come into our culture and see the way that we obsess over sex, the natural conclusion would be something has gone wrong with our attachment to sex. Sex is everywhere. We are obsessed with sex. We are surrounded by images of sex on on TV, in the books we read, movies, the internet. The biblical perspective is that sex is good. That sex is meant to be enjoyed in the context of a marriage. But the cultural perspective of sex is entirely different, right? The cultural perspective of sex is that sex is not just a good thing, but that sex is an ultimate thing. That sex is something we deserve. Sex is something we must have. We have made sex into a necessity. We believe that not only do we have the right to be sexually gratified, but we, we believe that we cannot be complete without sexual gratification. Our culture tells us that if somehow we are prevented from being sexually gratified, it is a great injustice. If we can't have sex with who we want to, if we can't have sex at all, we're told that our life is incomplete. We are told that if our sex life is inhibited, our whole life is inhibited. If our sex life is is blocked, then our whole life is blocked, that we cannot be whole and complete human beings unless we're sexually fulfilled. Our culture tells us that sex is a core aspect of our identity, but it's not, it's not. Sex is good, but it's not everything. Sex is a gift from God, but it is not fundamental to our wholeness as people. Jesus Christ was a whole human being. In fact, Jesus Christ was the most whole human being. His life was full. His life was abundant. His life was lacking no thing, and he never had sex. Amen? the most complete and most fulfilled human being this universe has ever seen was a single person. And that's good news. That is good news for us. That is good news for us because it means for you, if the Lord has not given you a spouse, or if the Lord has not given you an avenue to have sex within His boundaries, He has not inhibited you from having a full life. He has not kept you from something that is going to ruin your life. The Bible, it exalts marriage. It exalts marriage between a man and a woman. But it also exalts singleness. The Bible exalts celibacy and and chastity. And in doing so, the Bible tells us a good thing. It tells us that sex doesn't define you. Sex doesn't control you. Now, if you're a Christian in this room, you might be thinking of this from the inside out. You might be looking at the culture and saying, well, our culture does that, and that's a bad thing that they do. But I want to say, in the church, we do this too. In the church, I think we exalt marriage beyond the place it should be. We act as if you aren't married, then your life is somehow incomplete. We relegate the single people in our congregations to some kind of second class, and we don't include them. In the, the fully in the life of the church. We are a church whose Lord and Savior is a single man. And that fact alone should bring us back to our senses. Sex is good, but it's not everything. Amen? All right. The third thing I want to mention here is that sex is often misused. That's why we have the seventh commandment. The seventh commandment is given in order to rightfully restrain the ways we use sex. So what does it forbid? Well, it clearly forbids adultery. It forbids having sex if you are married with anyone who you're not married to. And I, I can't remember where I found this. I didn't have time to look it back up, but there was some survey, I think it was Pew Research or something, and it was surveying marriage and, and adultery and it found that in our society still, the vast majority of people see adultery as a wrong thing. The vast majority of people from across religious perspectives and non-religious perspectives say, if you're married, you should not have sex outside of your marriage. We agree, generally, that adultery is bad. But also, I think this is one of those commandments where if that's the only thing it means, a lot of us can feel good about ourselves. Either I'm not married, so I can't have adultery, or I am married and I'm not committing adultery. But you know, Jesus takes this command a lot further, right? Matthew chapter 5, Jesus shows us what this command really means. He tells us in the Sermon on the Mount, I don't know if you guys got your Bibles, grab one. If you don't own a Bible, take one. Those are gifts to you. We want everyone to have a, a copy of the Word of God. Matthew 5, 27, it says, You have heard that it was said So Jesus, in the Sermon on the Mount, he takes these commands and he tells us not just about the outward actions that are prohibited, but also about the inward actions that are included. It's not just what we do with our bodies, but it's even what's inside of our hearts. That means the seventh commandment, it it includes everything from adulterous sex outside of your marriage to any lustful thoughts inside of your head. And that also means it includes everything in between. I think that's worth saying. This command says we should not have sex outside of our marriage. But it also prohibits any other sexual activity that happens on this earth beyond that one specific instance of a covenant relationship between a husband and a wife. And so that means it prohibits people from having sex before marriage prohibits people from living together when they are unmarried, if they're in a romantic relationship. It prohibits all sexual lust, and that means it can be in-person lust, it can mean some person you know, that you see that you're lusting after, but it can also be images that you are imagining in your head. It could be images that you are viewing on a screen. That means also that it prohibits the use of pornography. Let's, let's talk about that for a second. You know, when I say that sex is everywhere, part of what I'm always thinking is that porn is everywhere. This same thing I'm using right here to keep track of my time is also a 24-7 window into the most graphic depictions of sex that, you have, that the world's ever seen. And most of us in this room are, are carrying one of these things around in our pocket all the time. Pornography is an extremely dangerous thing because pornography is the opposite of what sex is meant for. We talked about sex being only making sense in the context of a covenant, that sex is is about mutual service, but but porn is not that. Porn is not sex made for mutual service, for intimacy, for, for love and commitment between a husband and a wife. It is sex for consumption. It is sex for individual gratification. Porn turns sex into something like a piece of gum. Something that you you chew up, and when you're done with it, you spit it out. It's something that you use. It's people that you use and then throw away. And here's the, the truth. Every man in this room and most women in this room have seen porn. It's just a statistical certainty. I didn't take a survey. I'm just certain of it. I I know it's the case. Every man in this room and most women in this room have seen pornography, and some of you very recently. Some of you, maybe in the last 24 hours. And, And if you're a Christian, you probably already feel bad about that. If you are a Christian and that's true of your life, you probably already feel terrible. You probably don't need me to stand up here and tell you that was a bad thing to do. One of the most terrible realities of this connected age that we're living in is, and the the prevalence of of porn all around us is the accessibility of it and the anonymity of it have, have taken people who maybe never would have entered into a brothel or a strip club And it's ensnared them. It's ensnared us. Porn has become the avenue that has allowed lust to take us captive. That has allowed our our lust to enslave us. Not to mention, make us complicit in an industry that is abusive. That's built upon abuse. That's built upon oppression. That is designed to use your addiction to make somebody somewhere rich. When I meet with people in our church, this is probably the number one issue, especially for men, that they feel trapped by. That they feel powerless over. Something that they have struggled with for for decades. And if it's not porn, whether it's porn or, or something else, I think it's fair to say, when we break the seventh commandment, our violations of it Our sexual sin is always something we feel. It's always something that leaves us feeling empty. It leaves us feeling like we've been lied to. It leaves us searching. Why is that? Why is this a command that hits us so deeply? I've never had someone come up to me and, and, and tell me they're really struggling with their guilt over perpetually breaking the fourth commandment. we got a lot of fourth commandment breakers here. <laughs> Honoring the Sabbath. I, think I should have asked you that one too. People don't come up to me and tell me they're, they're, they're plagued with guilt over their Sabbath breaking. But, but we are plagued with guilt over our sexual sin. Well, 1 Corinthians, it gives us some insight into that. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 6, The body is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord, and the Lord for the body. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Shall I then take the members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? Never! Or do you not know that he who is joined to a prostitute becomes one body with her? Hear that last line. You are not your own. You were bought with a price. Paul says that sexual sin is especially harmful for us. It is especially harmful for Christian people because we have been bought with a price. Paul tells us that just like our lives don't belong to us, our bodies don't belong to us. In Christ, sexual sin is more harmful than it has ever been because it is a sin against the Lord who dwells in us. And I think we, we, you know that. If you're a Christian, you, you know that instinctively once you come to faith. I, I hear this all the time. People come to faith and then they sleep around and then they say, this thing I used to do that didn't bother me all that much now bothers me a ton. And I, I can't live the way I used to live. If that's how you are, if you're in sexual sin right now, whatever it may be, and you feel guilt about it, that's a good sign. It's a good sign because it means that Christ's Spirit is in you. If you don't feel guilt about it, it's a bad sign. God's Spirit is present in His people. Our bodies are a temple for the Lord, and the misuse of sex defiles them. But you know, even if you aren't a Christian, I think you still feel the pain of sexual sin. I know you still feel the pain of sexual sin. Because whether you want to admit it or not, sex does have meaning. And sex is always trying to connect with that meaning. One pastor compared it to, uh, you know, sex is, is the glue that holds a covenant marriage together. And if you, if you take it outside of that context, you are all, it's like gluing down a piece of paper and then ripping it up. Gluing it down and, and ripping it up. Sex outside of marriage is damaging. Sex outside of marriage rips us up. It wears us down. It leaves us feeling hollow and broken. And maybe that's you today. Maybe that's how you feel this morning. To some degree, I think it's all of us. So what do we do? Well, Paul, in this passage we just read, makes one clear suggestion. He says, flee. He says, do not mess around with sexual sin. Do not convince yourself that it's going to be okay. Do not convince yourself that you're going to be able to get it under control. That you can stay in that relationship you're in. That you can stay in these places where you always find yourself looking at stuff you shouldn't. He says flee. Proverbs says, can you carry fire next to your chest and your clothes and not be burned? Of course not. So if if you're sleeping with somebody who's not your spouse, your instruction is to flee. If you are caught up in pornography right now. Your instruction is to flee. Well, how do you do that? How do you flee? You know, there's a lot of things. This, this, we could do a 10-week series on all the things that sex brings in to the conversation. But I think the very basic instruction I want to offer you today is to expose your sin. A friend of mine was saying the other day that so often in the church... We want to do the least amount of work possible to flee from our sin. We want to tell the fewest number of people we can so that we can keep it to ourselves, so that we can work up the strength from inside and just do it. Don't do that. Expose your sin, tell somebody about it. No one here is going to be shocked to find out that you're a sinner. There is nothing that you can tell me that I I assure you have not heard much worse. No one in this room will have anything but grace for a sinner who desires holiness. Amen? I want to encourage you, tell somebody. I don't care who it is. Tell me. Tell tell Manny. Tell Patrick. Tell one of the elders. Tell one of the women in our church. After the service, we're going to have some people up here for prayer. Come up and tell them. But let somebody know where you are. Don't try to do it alone. Flee from your sin. Sex is often misused. Sex is a gift. It's often misused, and we need to flee. We need to run. So, the last point. The last thing I want to say is that sex is redeemed in the gospel. Sex is redeemed in the gospel. And maybe this is what I want you to hear. We probably need to hear this more than anything else. In Christ, the sexually immoral are redeemed and restored. If you read through the Old Testament, you'll find out that one of the most common pictures of God is that of a husband. And the most common picture of the church, of his people, is an unfaithful wife. Probably the most famous of those pictures is in the book of Hosea. In the book of Hosea, God calls his prophet and he says that you need to go out and you need to marry an adulterous woman. And so he goes and he takes this unfaithful woman to be his wife. And she continues to be unfaithful to him. In their marriage, she has children that aren't his children. And eventually she is so unfaithful that she leaves him for another man who then sells her into slavery. Most likely into prostitution. And there's a moment in Hosea chapter 3 where the Lord goes to Hosea and he says, Go again, Love a woman who is loved by another man and is an adulteress. Even as the Lord loves the children of Israel, though they turn to other gods. That picture is a picture of what God has done for each one of you in Jesus Christ. We are all that faithful, that faithless woman. We have all turned away from the God who created us. The God who created us to live in relationship with him. Who offers to set us free from bondage and slavery. Who invites us into eternal life. Who tells us that in his presence there is fullness of joy. At his right hand are pleasures forevermore. We have rejected that God. Instead of loving him, we have gone our own way. We have rejected that eternal pleasure and instead chosen a quick fix. Instead of understanding that our lives and our sex lives belong to Him, we have taken our lives for our own. And you know what? We have taken other people's lives as if they were our own as well. We have led other people astray through our desire for pleasure. We have turned human beings into objects to be consumed. We have sold ourselves and others into prostitution. But in the person of Jesus, God has come to buy us back. Paul says we were bought with a price. We were bought back with the price of his perfect and sinless life on the cross. And through his death, through his resurrection, he now invites you today, he invites you into his home. He invites you into this relationship with Him. He invites you to a a healed household. He invites you to come in and remove those prostitutes' clothing that you have put on yourself and be clothed in the righteous robes of His perfect Son. We were bought with a price. And I want to speak to you, because if you are in that place this morning, if you are in the place this morning where you feel the weight of this command, I want to invite you to come to Him. I want to invite you to come to Jesus and feel the the freedom of His forgiveness. To let Him loose the bondage of your sin. To let Him break the shackles of your slavery. Deuteronomy, it told us that last thing that we read, that people who are caught in adultery... What God requires of them is their lives. But the good news of the Gospel is in Christ, He has taken what we deserve. And if we flee our sin, if we run into His arms this morning, then you don't hear the condemnation of the men surrounding you to stone you. Instead, you hear the words of our beloved Savior who says, There's no one left to condemn you. And neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more. Let's pray. Father, this is a tough one because it is not abstract in in the least bit. There is no one here who has been unscathed by this world that surrounds us with adultery. There is no one in this room who is unharmed. There is no one in this world who has not been abused. And Lord, we need You to save us. Father, I pray that we would be welcomed before You. And I pray, Lord, that You would convict us of our sin. Lord, if we are complacent, if we are unmoved by it, I pray that You would change us. Lord, would You call us to Yourself? Would You wash us clean by the blood of the Lamb? We pray in Christ's name, Amen.